As a Papuan Australian woman, I acknowledge that I am a settler on this land that I live, work and create on. I acknowledge there are ongoing native title cases on this land today due to the impacts of colonisation and I want to pay my respects to the many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples of this country and to their elders past, present and emerging. Welcome back, listeners. Let's dive into part two of our podcast episode with Lisa Viliamu and Mary Harm. I suppose a lot of your work is about it's either reclaiming space or giving power back to community. Um, and there's different ways that you can do that. And one term that you that we often hear about is a culturally safe space. So in your experiences and in a perfect world, what does a culturally safe space look like? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Yeah, so uh, there's this concept of um, in, in a Western society, you've got pillars, um, systems of oppression. So like uh, one pillar is the patriarchy, one pillar is capitalism, and the other pillar is white supremacy. Um, and so for me, a culturally space is dismantling those pillars, um, that uphold, yeah, Western society. Um, so for me, it would be a space where women, and I mean, all women, trans women are respected and, um, equally like seen as equal to men, um, where white supremacy doesn't dominate, um, it's not the norm, um, all types of languages are accepted, all types of thinking, religions, um, and also capitalism doesn't rule. So, um, you know, there's more value on, on land, sea and sky and understanding the connections that Indigenous people have to land, sea and sky and respecting that, respecting sovereignty of Indigenous people, um, respecting, yeah, respecting um, Indigenous people for one and being guided by their wisdom. Um, you know, something that I love about what we've done through Conscious Mike is through our art exhibitions, we've really made a point to... Um, uh, we call them control delete the exhibitions where we're trying to reboot the arts um, by creating these exhibitions um, that only platform Indigenous Black or, um, communities who identify as people of colour. Um, and I think, yeah, it's a safe space and though like because our exhibitions are known to be really safe like if you come to one you'll see hundreds of um communities who i guess are considered minorities or marginalized um and now you'll just see them freely like enjoying the space and it it's hard to explain but it's yeah i think it's because they also see themselves in the art 
um, the performances and yeah. <laughs> I love that. She's really good at articulating, hey. No. Hmm. <laughs> Undercover. What about you, Mary? Um, I mean, I definitely agree with everything Lisa said. Um, but I think a safe space is like it's it's co-designed or it's you know designed by the people who are gonna use that space because they know exactly what they need and what they want and what is meaningful and valuable to them. And there's an Indigenous saying that I've heard a few times this week in conversations about, you know, moving at the speed of trust. Um, And I think just that understanding of that, I think is also so key to to a safe space. A culturally safe space, like, to me, in terms of work, like this is not for like my practice with my community. That's a different thing. But in a white organisation, you got to make sure that um, you have people like, you know, diverse communities and, and um, you know, for, for example, an Islander, like you'd want people in leadership spots too, mm-hmm. not just like at the bottom doing all the work or whatever like for it to be a safe space they need to have roles of leadership too otherwise it's just white saverism Mm. power imbalance yeah yeah definitely and then if we talk about like a physical cultural safe space like you know sometimes you like you walk into into spaces and it just the actual physical like presence is just not like you don't feel welcomed, I think sometimes that's overlooked as well. I can tell you a story of when I went to a protest that wasn't culturally safe, like in Canberra years ago. I remember going down there and they were having like a briefing for the activists and there was like a handful of us Pacific Islanders and the food they had <laughs> was just like not made with love and if you're islander you know that food is love and just mm. the the fact that they didn't have enough food the food was cold and the food was like this weird orange soup that we were like what what is this um you know like that in itself like was an indication of oh this isn't really our space mm. and then as the as it progressed we realized it definitely wasn't our space like they were willing to put us in the restable positions and being arrested as an islander is very different to being arrested as um a balangi here like mm, you know exactly. the consequences of impacts on visas and what that means for family and mm. and like bringing in income that type of thing so it's funny but i can almost tell when people don't have food yeah <laughs> like good food like it's an indication to me of where they're at <laughs> mm. if they're trying to engage our community that's a good point was i at that one i was at that one wasn't i no. no um i just thought of another example you know working with um young people from refugee um and migrant backgrounds you know we often ask within ourselves like ask questions around okay you know why aren't young people of refugee and migrant backgrounds accessing services? Why aren't you know why aren't they accessing healthcare? Um, why aren't they accessing tertiary education? Um, and a lot of the feedback you know in consultations with those communities is that 
they don't feel like that's their space. Um, and there's a number of reasons, you know, sometimes it can be like the actual physical space. Um, you know, they walk in and the posters on the walls don't have their language or the posters on the wall don't have people of their colour. Um, so there are things that I think people can do like quite easily to make places culturally safe, but that's only one element. Um, and then there's that yeah, representation in leadership leadership positions and the decision-making um, positions, because often, you know, we have amazing young people with amazing ideas um, and can contribute and participate wholeheartedly in, in that decision-making process, but because whoever is in that leadership position or I guess the gatekeeper um, dictates, I guess, where that idea, where that passion goes. Yeah, these buzzwords, uh, like they're popping up everywhere and I know that I come across them and like I use them a lot when I have to communicate to people who aren't Pacific Islander or from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Um, One aspect of the project is at the end of the project, giving a recommendation to institutions, businesses, organisations and state and federal government about how we create safe spaces, you know, buzzword, or how do we elevate um, our First Nations women and the community that they are a part of? Do you think that this needs to be like a department that is implemented into organisations? Is it an individual that's implemented into organisations who has this knowledge that does it to create these safe spaces and also to make sure that power is given back to community? Or what do you think, I guess, is some sort of solution or, yeah, I guess, solution, if we're going to go with that word? The first thing I thought of was, like, that's a lot of labour. <laughs> like... yeah well I think they need to firstly pay people for for consultation to Mm. do this work and it's ongoing and long term Mm. it's not going to be an overnight thing because it's like a a it's just mainstream culture like how can you change people's because it all comes from people's mentalities and and value systems, in my opinion. Mm. Like, how can you? Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's why we have war. <laughs> like, because mm. people. How, yeah, how can you create transformational change in in systems that have oppressed people mm. and on stolen land and still haven't done right by Indigenous people and continue mm. to undermine their sovereignty like it's like yeah it's almost like surface level yeah but yeah that's a hard question I mean I'd like to say storytelling is a great way because it's about people's values right and people's mentality and their and their view of the world and I feel storytelling is so um, powerful in shifting mindsets and changing um, how people feel. Like, you know, if we look at film, for example, and people yeah. watch movies and all of a sudden they're like, oh, my gosh, I didn't realise that. You're so right. Like the polar bears. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
humanizing it humanizing it but like that's generational like that's not something that happens overnight and so like Lisa when you're talking about like you know paying people for the long-term consultation I think like if we can use COVID for example for like the messaging to community around the COVID-19 whole pandemic and how community were consulted um but like in in, in ways that probably were not culturally safe, first of all, and in ways that were like as if it was going to be a quick fix, like, you know, we'll have a five-minute chat and we'll have all the answers. Um, and then later on in the pandemic, realising like, oh, wow, we've got this totally wrong, we need to do more consultation, but not paying people for that knowledge or that insight and then over-consulting them to the point where now they're burnt out um, and then putting that labour on community to, you know, translate to create posters to mobilize the community um but not paying for any of that and not valuing that like information and that that um that community power i guess that's an example of yeah how it has not worked um and now like i guess there's like the domino effect right when when that isn't done right we see now like all the issues that we're going to have to like troubleshoot now. Um, yeah. How to change that, that's difficult. But I think it's a good start to put value on people's time and insight. But I agree with Lisa, like how do you even change I, a system that like... I feel like these issues that pop up in like, you know, in personal experiences of someone having, being offended and that's not being a safe space, that's like a... It's like uh, like a symptom of a deeper issue. Yeah, people struggle with that question a lot, obviously. See why. Uh, yeah, and I feel like, again, like as you said, there's a lot of labour. Like already you're doing it for free and you're just doing it within your own networks and your own community trying to establish that change. And then you think of it, because, you know, when you do a, a grant proposal, like, okay, well, you need to make the change now and it has to be right now. And it's so, but how do we do that? And yeah. I think the answer to that is it's not going to happen overnight, like you said. This is something mm. that happens generationally. So do you think because this is a generational thing that, say, two generations from now, do you think the world will be as it obviously won't be as it is, but do you think it would be better? I mean, I, I kept thinking of this quote that um, Brianna Fruin often says, like, when we talk about climate leadership and, like, what does that look like? And she says, you know, true climate leadership is like weaving a fala, which is a, a mat, um, knowing that you'll never get to sit on it, but that your, your, your children and your children's children will. And so what she's pretty much saying is, you know, like the work that we're doing now, we may not bear that fruit or we may not see that change or feel, even feel that change, um, but we do it because we know that's going to contribute to a, to a, it's going to contribute long-term, if that makes sense. And I, we, I, then I look back and I think of, you know, our old people and the sacrifices and, and everything that they did to ensure that the next generation could push forward just that little bit bit more um and every generation should be working to do that like just that little bit more a little bit more and so i would hope um in saying that that to your question Lala, that in that you know next three generations that yes the world would be a better place 
will we get to like exactly where we want to be? I'm not sure. But I'm, I, I think I'm confident in that because there is some great work happening um, and community are powerful. And I like in the short time that I've been, um, you know, working in community in this capacity, but also in the climate space, like I've seen some pretty awesome stuff and some pretty big wins. And if that's the rate that we're going, I think they, I would hope that there is, you have to be hopeful. Yeah. Otherwise it's just like, what's the point? Exactly. Hi listeners, the final part of our conversation continues in the upcoming episode. See you soon.